Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 15. And since we have no retroactive history to get into this episode, we will take a quick break to run a podcast promo and then get back to you with the cover detail. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks, and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Flycast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real! The death-defying human fly cast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. We're back. So, Rich, yeah, did you miss us? I I, I did. (laughs) Uh, So, Rich is going to hit us with the cover detail for this issue, as usual. Take it. The mystery and madness of weird war tales. The all black and white title is a gorgeous contrast on a red background on the top third of the page. Still 20 cents. Art by Luis Dominguez. Seven red German Fokker D7 World War I fighter planes dive out of the open mouth of a skull-shaped cloud and attack a unit of fleeing American infantry. Cover date and release, July 1973, released April 17th, 1973. No killjoy from the cover. Just let you dive into comments and commendations. Let you go first, man. Yeah, all right. So it's yet another cover that works perfectly well without uh, my beloved blurbs and speech bubbles and boisterous copy or anything like that. But it still looks great. And yet another great cover by Luis Dominguez. I guess I really should start committing this guy's work to my so-called memory because he's all of a sudden, since I said I don't know who he is, his name keeps showing up. So I, I've told you, I've told you, like, you know, he's done like the last like six. Covers, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now I'm starting to actually take note, but the, again, this just works perfectly as a so-called silent cover and I wouldn't change a thing about it. It's like, are the Americans fleeing from the planes or the image of a floating death's head in the sky? Voldemort's death eaters, anyone? The light blue cross hatched inks that form the sky slash cloud contrast. Of the skull is phenomenal. Usually you only see that in darker colors for shadowing the light. 
like the the effect here is amazing. Yep. So we're going to take a look at the first story in the issue. This is Ace King just flew in from hell. Script by Arnold Drake. Art by Don Perlin. So I got two of my favorite classic creators right there. Arnold Doom Patrol, Drake, Don, Defenders, Perlin. Seven pages long. And the synopsis reads as follows. Oh, you have read intro like Rod. Yeah, here. The, uh, the, uh, the Death's Head narrator wearing the World War One flying helmet, you know, the intro. When I read it, it looks like, you know, I, I could hear Rod Sterling saying all right. that. So I suggested so like we could do that. We're so. going to have you do the first story, man. So I'm going to scrap all that stuff I just did. <laughs> and uh, so, okay, now that the cover details out of the way, Rich is going to take us into the first story. Again, hey, Ace King just flew in from hell. Script by Arnold Drake, art by Don Perlin. Seven pages. Synopsis is as follows. Start the intro with someone we all know and love. The war lovers are legion and often have one thing in common. None ever went to war. Not the library commandos and the schoolboy collectors of tin soldiers fight all their battles and dreams. But get ready to scratch one dreamer whose battle fantasies are about to become reality 2,000 feet over the trenches of World War I. A confrontation that could only exist in the Weird War. <sighs> anyway, year old Tommy wakes up his dad in the middle of the night because he's imitating his grandfather's World War I exploits in the air, right down to wearing a scarf, flying helmet, and goggles. Dad gently tells Tommy he has to stop glorifying war. He never knew, Gramps. He was shot down two months after he was born. Dead men, crying wives, mothers, and fatherless children. You want to romanticize that? Gotta have to wonder if dad was a World War II vet. After dad goes back to bed, Tommy stares at the large photo of his grandfather on the wall and wonders why he can't idolize the family war hero. At that moment, Gramps, or Ace King, appears in Tommy's room, decked out in full flying gear. Tommy is beyond shocked. Gramps tells him the skies are full of Bosch and we fly at dawn, which is now. The two of them are swept into a swirling vortex and materialize in a World War I fighter flying over France. Three enemy planes immediately pounce on them. Gramps sideslips away from the first plane and fires a burst into it as it zooms by, setting it ablaze. Tommy can see the enemy pilot burning as the plane goes down. An Immelman turn gets Gramps behind a second Fokker, which he also sets ablaze. Tommy is relieved to see the pilot get out but his chute catches fire and he plummets to his death. But Gramps' luck runs out as his guns jam and the last Fokker dives for the kill. Tommy says, Gramps has always found out a way before, but Gramps replies, there's always an end to always. Bullets tear into their plane and they go into an uncontrolled vertical dive. As Tommy asks, what do we do? Gramps asks, we do nothing. You go back to where you belong. As for me, I do what they sent me here for, what they sent all of us here for. I die, he screams. Tommy wakes in bed with a start. He knows that somehow it hadn't been a dream. He understands. Next day, Graham's picture is gone. And Tommy has a newfound interest in baseball. So you're lunging right into the Killjoy History Minute combo. Page three, panel six. You know, how long has it been? 50 years long, Ace King exclaims as they enter the time tunnel. Yeah, that would have been 1923, five years after the war ended. Page four, panel one, the Newport Ace King and Tommy materialized in is almost comically compressed and needs to be stretched out a bit to get the dimensions right. 
page five, panel one. Farthest most insignia on the wing looks like it's sliding off the back edge. Page six, panel three. The German's parachute catches fire and he plummets to his death. Unless you were in an observation balloon, air crew didn't wear chutes. The higher-ups believed pilots would hit the silk at the first sign of danger and too many planes would be lost. I've mentioned this before. Air crew were left either riding a fiery comet to the ground or jumping to certain death. There was actually a third option I neglected to bring up before. Air crew would shoot themselves with their sidearms, which was no doubt the fastest way to do it. Although apparently the Germans did start wearing chutes the last six weeks of the war. So depending when this story takes place, maybe I can give this a pass. The powers that be on all sides after the war finally figured out it took a lot longer to train a pilot than to build a plane. So shoots became standard. Also, the Immelmann turn was named for Max Immelmann, the first German World War I ace who supposedly invented it. He scored 15 victories before being shot down and killed in 1916. Comments and commendations. I think it was episode three when I talked about how all kids play soldier when they're growing up. Yeah, well, you know, they also play fighter pilot. I, I used to have model airplanes by the dozen filling my room as a kid from World War I to the Cold War. Corsairs versus Zeros, Sabres versus MiG-15s, Eagles versus MiG-25s. I had countless dogfights in the skies over my bed, and the good guys won a hell of a lot more often than they did. That has to be why this story spoke to me as loudly as it did. Most kids in this country have no idea of the cost of war, but Tommy learned. I said in episode zero that I've been blessed with not deploying to any combat zone yet in my army career. I've only got one war story that could even remotely be called that when I got involved in the immediate aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. But I have plenty of friends that have been to Iraq and Afghanistan. One of the most powerful moments of my reenacting career was uh, after hours at an event, uh, drinking beer around a fire and listening to a World War II vet talk about the time he and three of his buddies in a Jeep ran over an anti-tank mine and they got blown 20 feet into the air. Two of them didn't make it because the Jeep landed on them and they burned. What, 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 what the hell do you say, you know, other than in all seriousness, make war no more. But hey, getting to the art of the story, let's go back to page one, panel one. I love the scene presented around the title of the story, Four Wrecked Folkers and the Newport, the bodies hanging out of the cockpits or off the title letters of Hell by Parachute. That's good. That was a real good one. Yeah, that's a... That's some like Will Eisner touch there, working in the um, the logo or the title into the scene. I mean, this this was a great story to kick off the issue with. I I liked it. It's one heck of a nice counterpoint to, as you mentioned, the "I've been here before" story from the earlier issue. Like the disturbingly cheery mania of Gramps contrasting with little Tommy's increasing terror was also a nice bit of dark comedy for me. I I especially like the almost Mary Poppins like feel of the duo's first journey down the time tunnel on the final panel of page three. Things still look like they're going to be fun right there, don't they, Tommy? And, you know, I like that we kind of got to see the skull in the clouds from the cover on page four, panel one, and on page five, panel four. Also, I'm a big fan of Don Perlin uh, from his work on Ghost Rider and the Defenders, but if this is what it looks like when he inks his stuff himself, I really wish he'd done so more often. There's a grittiness to the inks here that no one ever seemed to apply to Perlin's pulsating pencils past this point. Uh, his stuff always looked, yeah, his stuff always looked like really clean and sometimes stiff under other inkers 
uh, pens, but he really has like a grit to it here that I'm not used to seeing with Perlin's work. So this was a big one for me. So I, I really, I really dug it. Arnold Drake, you know, the Doom Patrol guy and Don Perlin, I'm ready to go. What do we have up next here? We got behind the scenes at the DC comic world. So uh, what's this like? This is like a little text piece, right? Like letting you in on what's uh what's up at DC. It's kind of like a precursor to the direct currents. Yeah, the, or, the, 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 the first paragraph to start it. Welcome to the world of the people who create comics. On this page and its companion feature page, Dread Currents, you will finally meet the people who produce comics, learn how they are produced, and find out about our latest projects. Dread Currents will give you an issue-by-issue prediction of upcoming stories and features. Both pages will be appearing in almost every DC magazine in a month or so. More about behind the scenes later. Now let's take a walk down to the production department for a preview of a new DC program, the Junior Bullpen Project. It's yeah, all about like up and comers and everything. Yeah, so. so this is like, so it's a companion to Direct Currents, but Direct Currents is, well, I think, still around today in some form or other. But this behind the scenes thing, I don't think lasted too long. But you know who got his first job in comics? from this junior bullpen project that they just mentioned in the column, Pat Broderick. He got his first work from that project. And we just met the guy back on you know, the, the, the previous con. Road Warriors. Yeah. So um, there's at least one person that actually got work from that project. It wasn't just some, you know, nonsense they were blowing smoke about in this column. It happened and someone got work. So, and someone really yeah. good got work from it. So that's cool. Yeah. There's a, there's a paragraph you know, further in the story. This is your chance of a lifetime. If you have ever dreamed about working in the comic book field, get your material ready and come to the convention. See you there. Of course, if you can't make it to the Comic-Con, send your material to Saul Harrison here at National. If you've already done this and haven't received an answer, please be patient. Saul has a lot of material to look over. More likely, he was just like me. <laughs> Don't waste my time, kid. Slush pile. After, after the behind the scenes is, is out of the way here, we have our second story in the issue. This one is called The Survivor. Script is by Jack Olek, and art is by favorite of the show, Jerry T. Jerry Talayok. It's seven pages long. And the synopsis for this one goes a little something like this. Death tells a tale he found written on a sheepskin floating inside a cask centuries ago. The Viking vessel Serpent was on storm-tossed seas pursued by harpies. We are Vikings, not monkeys, declared their leader, Lars Ironhand. And what a so Viking... What else what his name was. <laughs> yeah. And what a Viking can see, he can fight. But 30 warriors, Loki among them, were thrown into the water when their ship struck rocks, attempting to avoid a whirlpool. Only a handful made it ashore, where they discovered human remains. The sorceress Throna greeted them and said they too shall stay for eternity. She summoned monsters to finish off the survivors, but the Vikings were victorious. Iron Hand knew the Vikings couldn't live while Throna still did, and they went in search of her. But all they found were more of her creatures. Day after day passed, and the Vikings continued to be triumphant, but their numbers were reduced with each conflict, and the need for water became dire. Knowing she had met her match, Throna came to bargain. In return for peace, she would show the Vikings the spring of knowledge. Iron Hand was understandably skeptical, but reasoned with the wisdom the water would give them, they could leave this accursed place. Throna slipped away as the Vikings drank their fill of the sweetest water they'd ever tasted. They slept, and in the morning were horrified to discover their heads 
had grown and their bodies had shrunk. As their bodies wasted away, they learned more and more. Lars knew they were becoming pure thought, and soon they would all become one with the wind. One by one, they vanished as Throna's laughter filled the air, until the last survivor used his own blood to scribble the tale on a sheepskin parchment. Death returns to say how he initially didn't believe the tale, but watching Loki, the ship's monkey, Signed the parchment with tears in his eyes. He isn't so sure. So I'm going to take the killjoy here on this, you know, since it's a <laughs> my domain. Vikings did not write on paper or even sheepskin. They did have a written language known as Futhark, made up of symbols called runes, but these runes were carved into stone or wood, not written on paper. Yes, I know the enlightened monkey wrote the survivor's account, but still, he only associated with Vikings, so even an uplifted to human intelligence monkey should probably only know how to write the way his so-called owners always did, or, you know, appropriately. Am I just being a killjoy right here? Yeah, that's what you're yeah. here for, man. Kill Joel the old stuff. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so there we go. We got the we got the monkey writing the account at the end, and I'm gonna let Rich take the C and C here. Well, thanks to Marvel, Loki has never been as popular cultural culturally as he is now. Uh, like page seven, panel one, where the monkey is surrounded by the empty gear of the lost Vikings, watching the last two survivors under Throna's laughter. Page one, panel four, of the harpies chasing the serpent is great too. I like the story in general, but the art seemed a bit crowded, maybe because there was a lot of action and a lot of dialogue. Yeah, I'd agree the art does look a bit cramped, even though it is by the great Jerry T. But I think some of that is owed more to the coloring job than anything else. Now, it, it seemed that Jerry did a lot of his own coloring, so I guess the blame still lies with him. But in particular, I find that all the enemy types that the Vikings clash up against are painted with the same brush, so to speak, all one hue, making their enemies look like a blob more than a group of figures. I think that contributes to the sense of things being crowded. Like it's like they're fighting all red demons and now it's all one color demons or another. So it, it just doesn't jump out and differentiate as much as it should. I like the first page most of all, the top three panels with our host doing a, oh, hi, I didn't see you there. <laughs> Turn to the camera up top. And then that awesome splash panel at the bottom. It was a fun story too, with a great twist at the end. You know, the monkey was the one that wrote the survivor's tale because his drink of the water was enough to give him human intelligence. So I was thinking this monkey could easily turn up in other DC comics. Like if he wasn't a monkey, in fact, this could have been retconned as the origin for Detective Chimp, you know, and say that the water also made him immortal because, hey, magic. So I, I had a blast with this one. I, I thought it was great. It had a nice little twist at the end. And, you know, even though the art was a bit crowded, I still like looking at anything Jerry Talayak draws. So I was in with this one. Onward to the last story in the book, The Ultimate Weapon, script by Jack Olick, art by Alfredo Alcala, seven pages. No one knows how Sir Harry Anders came by King Richard's sword, but he was a braggart and a thief, completely unfit to wield such a renowned piece of steel. Mercy was for the weak, so he never had any. Other crusaders fought for a cause and knew mercy, but Sir Harry only fought for gold. So it was. After burning and pillaging his way across the Holy Land, he ordered some prisoners executed. The village chief, Malik al-Kabil, was also a magician, and he told Sir Harry that if he spared the villagers, 
he would receive a great gift, the ultimate weapon. Sir Harry scoffs, saying the sword he carried knew no equal. The chief offers Sir Harry the gift of foresight, of knowing who is about to die. Al Camille pulls a feather from his robes and drops it. Before the feather touches the ground, I will prove I have already given you the gift. Sir Harry's patience runs out, and he runs the chief through the sword. And turning to his men, Sir Harry is surprised to see some of his men have tiny skulls on their cheeks. At that moment, the Saracens attack. The fighting is savage, but the Crusaders are victorious. Every man that had sported the skull had been killed. Collecting their booty, the Crusaders burn the village and leave. Questioning himself about if he had really seen the mark, the mark appears again on the face of a man close to him. A shower of arrows rain down from a pile of boulders nearby, and that man takes one to the neck. The Crusaders retreat into the burning desert, and the Saracens pursue. Their arrows allow them to reach the knights who must keep fleeing before them. Their loot is discarded as unimportant over the next three days. Finally, the Crusaders reach a shaded oasis with a pool of water. Looking at his reflection, Sir Harry is horrified to see the mark on his own cheek. All of them wear it. The Saracens struck then, mounted on horseback. The Crusaders fight valiantly, but are overwhelmed. Sir Harry is the last to fall, and he is shocked when his mighty sword breaks against a Saracen lance, right before he is run through by a second lance. Sir Harry falls to the ground with a look of abject terror on his face, and the other Crusaders crowd around. He's dead. He looks like he was scared to death. But how? Malik al-Kamil uses that perhaps he met a weapon that made his sword puny by comparison. The Crusaders mock the old man, but he knows. Everything Sir Harry had experienced over the last three days had never happened. But there was such a weapon. In the East, it is called Illusion. And the feather lands on the blade of Sir Harry's sword. Yeah, uh, Alcala's art carries this bad boy. Page one, panel one of Sir Harry holding off a mass of serrations with a stack of bodies at his feet is stellar. And page seven, panel one, of course, when Harry screams so loudly, Alcala draws his uvula dangling in the back of his mouth. Whew. Great touch was how the feather landed on Harry's sword about where it broke on the serrations lance. Two thumbs up. Yeah, the art's amazing in this. I, I just, when you talked about page one, panel one, with the clash uh, with Sir Harry and all those enemies, it, that looked like something that could be right out of Prince Valiant again. It, the drawing's that good. I mean, Hal Foster's Prince Valiant, some of the best drawing you'd ever find in a newspaper comic strip. And this made me think of that right off the bat. So for me, I'm looking at page three, panel five. It's another mass combat scene but it's utterly devoid of sound effects, dialogue, or narration. And it gives me even more holy Prince Valiant vibes. Like it's a completely silent panel and I don't feel like it's lacking anything. If anything, it makes it more impressive. You know, there's great art, of course, throughout the whole story, but I also want to spotlight our skeletal host on page one, panel two, casually holding up the scroll containing his own narrative text. He just looks so chill, you know, like it's just like, oh, here, here, read this. Check it out. You read this? I can't. I'm a skeleton. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and again, I like when comics play with the narrative and the visuals. So instead of a word balloon, he's literally holding up a scroll with what he would have said on it. So I like when they get creative like that. But I got to say, I'm, I'm sorry, though. The, the ending and therefore several pages of the story before it, to me, just makes no damn sense. Even with its magic as a defense, there is just 
for me, like an almost total lack of narrative consistency there. Why put us through this three days worth of illusion if what really happened is he just dropped dead in front of everybody when the guy dropped the feather? I mean, it doesn't work for me. It pulled me out of the story. I love a good dumb twist ending, but this one for me wasn't dumb. It was stupid. So I gotta, I gotta call it like I see it, like just from the live experience of reading it, I was like, wow, that's dumb. So, you know, still, you know, it gave it, it gave us an excuse for some really cool pages and panels to look at. They just didn't, for me, tie it together in the end. So I gotta be the wet blanket on that. And uh, riding away from the final story, we'll go over and uh, refresh ourselves with a visit to the APO Weird War Tales letters page. All right, so. I will lead off with a letter that starts off the letters page from John Elliott of New York, New York. Uh, it says, Dear Joe, it is always a pleasure to read a story that Alex Toth has drawn. He ranks without a doubt among the best storytellers in the business, but this issue's treat who is haunting the haunted chateau was even better than the average Toth job. The reason? Isn't it obvious? Shelley Mayer has returned. Between the two of them, they carried off the story beautifully. This story seemed to offer readers the choice of believing it or rejecting the premise, which is the ideal situation for a ghost story of any kind. Now, I'm jumping out of the letter for a sec. It, it doesn't give you that choice because at the end, the champagne glasses lift up and clink. It's either someone's got telekinesis or there's ghosts at the table. But anywho, next, <laughs> next paragraph of this letter uh, talks about the room that remembered, however, was rather trite. The artist could learn a lot about storytelling from Toth, or from practically anybody for that matter, and the writing was at best mediocre. <laughs> we'll we talk about it. Yeah. yeah, we agree to disagree on that yeah, one. Yeah, very, Pal. very much so. Not, not, not with you on that one there, Johnny. So he goes on to say a short comment on Elizabeth Sarrow's letter in APO Weird War Tales. I would rather see you do away with the introductory stories than just change the formula. Perhaps a one-page intro, as in the other mystery books, would be enough to give the book a distinct flavor without wasting space on repetitive stories. Also, while I'm on the subject of adding things to Weird War Tales, why not add some of those cartoony pages like the War Mags have run, except with a horrific slant? It would give you a good excuse... <laughs> To get more work from Sergio Aragonis, always a funny artist. I agree with him on if Sergio could do it, I'd be all for it. We had more than one rant on how <laughs> awful some of those pages were in the reprint issue. <laughs> and again, not, not to bag on that artist. I just don't think that artist was much of a writer for gag pages. But yeah, if you could get Sergio who who did a bunch of like uh, humor strips and house of mystery and house of secrets then i'd be all for it if you can't get sergio how about you just don't do it so his john's letter goes on to say back to the stories cyrano's army was unusual and that it marked len ween's return to mystery books after a too long leave of absence the story was interesting although far from len's best again i found the art rather weak the top panel on page six was extremely interesting, though. That winds up my analysis of this issue. My major request is for more stories by Shelley Mayer. How about it, Joe? Joe Orlando responds, Dear John, Sheldon Mayer will be appearing as often as possible in Weird War Tales. Number 11 
featured a book-length novel of his. Reader reaction to that story is due next month. Yes, it and, is. Really. Yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> it is. And we have another book-lengther in the works. So, yeah, I got to say, this guy saying that the art in Cyrano's army was rather weak, and that's the Walt Simonson. Simonson yeah, so, so, he's, yeah. so he's calling Walt Simonson a poser. Nice. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I get that it's not to your taste or whatever, but it, it that story was anything but weakly illustrated. That was incredibly dynamic and inventive and cool looking. I get if it's just not your style, but John Elliott, I wanted to spotlight this, this letter because it's a good mix of like positive and negative comments that you could agree or disagree with. It's a lot more balanced than today's like either something's a hundred percent awesome or it's utter garbage, you know? So even though I disagree with probably most of what he had to say in the letter, I, I just wanted to bring that one up. So uh, we're glad we'll take the hooks out of John Elliott here and let Rich do his spotlight. Well, you know, hold the phone central because like I said, I've, I've read an issue or two in advance to know what's coming down the pike. And uh, John Elliott makes a return next APO, Weird War Tales. So tune in, folks. <laughs> now, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. There's uh, three pretty short letters that all cover about the same topic. So I figured, ah, oh, what the hell? Uh, Matt Phillips, Bobby Drorak, and name and address unknown all, you know, contribute to the, uh, what they want to see out of Weird War Tales. Uh, Matt Phillips says, I think you should print more supernatural stories because I buy Weird War Tales to get supernatural war stories. If I wanted ordinary war stories, I could buy Our Fighting Forces, Our Army at War, etc. I wish you would turn out good magazines like Weird War Tales number one, which I thought was very good. And then Bobby Drorak says, I think you're doing just great. And I don't think you really need to make any changes. I like the idea of the old skeleton in the trench coat. I also like the great job you're doing on all that art. I'm very satisfied with your work. So just buckle down and keep up the good work. And then, you know, name and un address unknown. I had to write you and compliment you on the job you're doing in Weird War Tales. But could we have a little less weird and a little bit more war? After all, yeah, Max gives a thumbs down. <laughs> there are about a dozen mystery mags coming out from National alone. House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Sinister House, Dark Mansion, Weird Mystery, etc. But there are only four war mags, Rock, Losers, Honda Tank, and the Unknown Soldier. So all about a little more time for the war stories. Thanks for listening. And if there was that last letter, actually, I had to go back you know, a few pages earlier in the magazine. You know, they have one of those put an X next to the comics you want, you know, subscription coupons, you know, that you cut out. And I, yeah, I was surprised. I had no idea that they made so many mystery slash horror books as compared to the war books. According to this, this little uh, cutout coupon thing, they have like 13 mystery books and only five war books. I was very surprised to see that, at least what they consider mystery and war. I mean, you know, there's like, you know, like, uh, like uh, five adventure, two science fiction, five romance. I'm kind of surprised to see that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't know that the mystery had, you know, like a, like a two to one plus dominance over war books. Yeah, some of them, they, they did definitely lean hard on that. But uh, some of the mystery books had kind of a short run. You know, the, the war books that they're mentioned there, those ran for much longer than many of those so-called competing mystery titles, even though I thought pretty much everything I've seen from DC's mystery line was really good. It looks like the market decided eventually to winnow it all down. In 1973, you know, the war books, you know, the ones that were still running or the ones that hadn't, you know, that hadn't come out yet. As he said, GI Combat, uh, Hornet Tank, Army at War, 
Sergeant Rock, Our Fighting Forces, Losers, uh, Star Spangled War Stories, Unknown Soldier, and Weird War Tales. So yeah, I mean, I would have been on all of these back in 1973 if I wasn't three years old. But <laughs> like I said, all five of those titles had runs that went on for quite a bit. So, you know, the jealousy not really warranted because a lot of the mystery titles were sort of pop up and disappear other than a couple of them. You know, they had much, much shorter runs. But still, I- I'm about to dig into um, The Witching Hour, which I've never read because uh, about six or seven issues of that are up on DC Universe Infinite right now. So that's a nice cheap way for me to get my hands on some old horror comics that I've never read before. And The Witching Hour has like a lot of Neil Adams covers and stuff like that. So yeah, I- I'm I'm just, I'm psyched about that. Yeah, but uh, before I turn this into a uh, how many cool horror books DC Comics put out back in the day podcast, we're going to go back to this issue (laughs) and take a look at some ads that we wanted to spotlight. So Rich will take us to his. Yeah, I mean, all I can say is, wow, what else could ad number one possibly be other than the four page ad shilling Walt Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean toys? Five new Zap Action kits from NPC. The ride at Disney World was going to open later this year, 1973, copying the popular ride in Disneyland. So NPC went all in. Here's a couple of descriptions. Condemned to chains forever. He tried to skip ship, but skip he will no longer. A hard-hearted scheme with alligator and all. But alligator beware. A finger's touch and zap action. Down swings the sword on the alligator's head. Hoist high the Jolly Roger. In fantastic detail, Captain Villainy with his peg leg upon the king's ransom, preparing to fight all comers. And curses. (laughs) Black smudge on the page. That's just what happens when zap action. He swings his arm with sword in hand. And woe to the treasure hunters. Fate of the mutineers. No fate worse than being dumped on a desert island and falling in quicksand. One matey tries to help the other out, but a touch of the switch and zap action! The blighter's bones give way. (laughs) I had to go to eBay and see what these things are going for today. Why is the rum gone? Because you're going to need a stiff drink to buy these. The cheapest one, hoist high, the Jolly Roger, goes for $210 unassembled. The most expensive... Fate of the Mutineers goes for 450 So yeah, going to need that pirate treasure to pay for these. They do look cool, though. Yeah, if they remade these today and even charged like 50 75 bucks, I'd have to pick up probably all three of them. They look incredibly cool. I got to wonder how good Is they there, look. Well, there's, there's five of them, actually. I only oh, read oh, the, okay. the write-up on three of them. Oh, okay. So <laughs> if, if like, you know, did, so you looked into what they actually looked like rather, cause there's no photos in the ad, right? No, it's just drawing. All, it's all animation. Yeah. 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 So like, did you see, like when you looked on eBay, how they actually look like, did they look half as cool as they make them look everything in this ad? Was, um, I think everything was unassembled. Yeah. So it right. was just a box. Yeah. Still. But though. I mean, 1973, man, I mean, you're looking at even just the way this stuff is drawn. And I'm like, whew, I mean, this is, this is tempting. <laughs> this stuff is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gotta say that's, that's definitely the champion ad of the issue for sure. For my ad, I decided, uh, since I already knew the pirate thing was going to be taken <laughs> and that we would get to that, 
I'm going to take a look at an ad for something called the Sports Illustrated Game Club. Tape quarter here. You know, this is just an ad for what looks to me like something very similar to the classic Stratomatic fantasy sports games that are about to have or have just had their 60th anniversary. So apparently Sports Illustrated was getting in on this, um, you know, fantasy sports game type thing that some other company was doing for a long time before they came along. So I just... I, I've never heard of this stuff. I never got to even experience anyone around me playing Stratomatic or especially the Sports Illustrated games. It's just a whole era of kind of nerdy gaming that I never ran into. You this know? is so, fantasy football 40 years at a time. Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know for all these different activities and stuff. And it's just, you know, I, I just always wondered how that worked. You know, like how, how did these games like, work like what was stratomatic all about and like how did it function but just whenever i see ads like this that was that's what really hits me like this is from a different era this is like the the straggling remains of like the stratomatic sports games you know and you know when i was like when i see a stamp collecting ad in these mags i'm like yep this is from days ago you know so (laughs) i just thought that was cool and and i knew there was nothing that was going to that was going to come up against uh, the freaking yeah, four-page pirate zap action model ad. That so might have been the most incredibly awesome ad that we have seen in 15 episodes. Let's just call it one. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of a fan of those uh, those two-page ads with the um, the adventure uh, vehicles and stuff. I can't remember what the heck they were called right now, but that's probably oh, a sign. The, um... Yeah. The, 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 those James Bondish, yeah, yeah, uh, man, I love that stuff. But Corgi, uh, whatever the cor, yes, the Corgi, Corgi boy, Corgi boy, Corgi, Corgi boy, yeah. <laughs> those, those are real old big. men, folks. We'll figure it out eventually. Those are real big for me, but but this thing is fantastic. So that's our ads. We are going to move on now to uh, our section we call "Got Any Last Words," and I'll lead off. Uh, as you may have gathered, uh, once again. I really enjoyed the heck out of this issue from the Disney movie gone wrong vibes of Ace King to the Lost Vikings version of the Odyssey of the Survivor and even most of the tale of hubris that was the ultimate weapon. Overall, for me, this continues to be very much in the mold of the series that I remember reading when I first encountered Weird War Tales in issue 68 back in the day. I knew as soon as I read Ace King, it was going to be my favorite story. Didn't have to read anything else. Far and away, for all the reasons I already went over in comments and combinations. Ultimate Weapon was second, Survivor a distant third. Overall, I'd put this in the middle of the pack for the issues we've gone over so far. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to Lee Sullivan, one of our followers, who informed us he was an opinionated smart aleck when he wrote a letter to APO Weird War Tales when he was 12 years old about this issue, which appears in issue 20. It's in the album. I told him that he had to give us feedback about a topic he initially wrote about almost 50 years ago. That would be legend. Looking forward to his take on our take on this issue. Max. Oh, that's cool. That's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the fact that some people who wrote into this series are now listening to us talk about this comic book is is mind blowing to me. Yeah, he, he sent me a flare like about like three or four issues ago, and I'm like, oh, this is this is getting put into the script 
now. And this cannot be forgotten. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, man. I figured our audience when we started this would be uh, would be something I could count on two fingers. It would be me and you listening to it and going, <laughs> that was cool, you know? <laughs> And the, the fact that we've gotten any response at all, especially the response we have gotten, the stuff like that is beyond anything I thought was going to happen. So speaking of having kind of an audience here, I'm going to take us over to the dead letter office where we take a look at people who gave us likes and comments and all that kind of stuff on the wonderful world of social media. This dead letter office focuses on episode 11 where we covered Weird War Tales number 10. And over on Twitter, we got likes and stuff like that from Chris at BTO and Bat Books. We got uh, Manuel Carmona, and he's at Truthful Comics. He's a big supporter of independent comics and small publishers' comics. Go check out Truthful Comics on Twitter. Uh, for real. The, the guy is really a, a champion for the small press there. So Lucretia, uh, we got Packed Cells back in the action here uh dr Ange at dr Ange 70 on twitter our good buddy from the long box crusade jared albreich the yard sale artist at yard sale artist on twitter dave's comic heroes blog our good friend iowa's joe crawford our buddies uh the checkered chums over at the checkered pod or the checkered pass podcast at go go check pod yeah yeah at go go check pod <laughs> go check those guys out it's one of the best podcasts about comics you're going to listen to and speaking of good shows we got luke jacanetti uh at the earth destruction directive that's l jacone at uh on twitter and uh, again podcast about giant monster movies it's so much fun to listen to we got the telltale mind we got our our friend darren murphy has resurfaced on twitter he's back we got coffee and comics from clinton robison doc strange mr billy delicious and on Twitter, we got a comment from Joe. Iowa's Joe Crawford just telling us that he thought it was a great episode. Uh, we got something from Professor Alan Middleton over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He said, fun, good listen today. Keep up the good work. And, you know, that that's that's I've been listening to Professor Allen for a while, and it's just cool to, to get a little thumbs up from somebody like that. That's just that's just cool to me. And Pack Sells, Dan Brown, said World uh, Weird War Tales number 11 was a gem. No one says, <laughs> actually, he's talking about our episode. So he said the episode was a gem, which is okay. You know, that's surprising to me. I was there. <laughs> he says, no one says vitriol enough nowadays. So thank you for that. I said, yeah, Rich, Rich and I have been accused of having randomly archaic vocabulary now and then, probably because, you know, we read too many comics. So Jumping over to the uh, swampy waters of Facebook, we have likes and so forth from Kurt Matilla, Brendan Schlitt, the Earth 2 podcast, our buddy Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast. We've got Billy Dunleavy, David Steele, who is also from the Earth 2 podcast, Martin Gray, Sir Martin of Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, which is if you want to keep up with current DC comics, there's no other site you need to read. Just Go over to dangermart.blogspot.com and read up what Martin has to say. We got Ken Boutillier, creator of the independent comic Zindagi, which I love quite a bit and talk about over on my Max Reads Comics blog. Now, as far as comments over on Facebook, Martin Gray says an all out classic in there in that issue. But the first part of the first letter, oh dear, and the comments about Toth in the second, Joe Orlando was ridiculously nice there. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say he's a bit more diplomatic than we would have been. And uh, David Steele lets us know he's got this issue. So I'm waiting to see what his impressions are of uh, of our impressions, see how they match up. And uh, Martin lets him know that the first story was discussed on Digest Cast over on the Fire and Water Network. So, uh, you know, other, other uh, podcasts have discussed Haunted Chateau. The story is a bit of a classic, and I agree it deserves to be. It was one of my favorite stories we've read in the series so far. It was so much fun. So if you want to reach out to us, we have a Gmail that could use some love. It's called weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. And soon it's probably going to be haunted because it's not getting any messages. We got our Facebook page, which uh, again, I'll mention rich updates with photos and all kinds of content all the time. There's, there's so much stuff that he puts over on the Facebook page and we are on Twitter at weird war pod. So those are all the ways to reach out to us. I want to thank everybody who likes, shares, retweets, comments, and all that again, uh, blows my mind every time when, when we get responses and, and so much positive feedback from people and, uh, just keep it up. I, I, I always like seeing it and, Again, I'll, I'll go back and mention the Facebook page again. Rich loads that up with pictures and stuff, not just from the issue, but about topics we cover, things like that. If you want more, he's putting more over there. So there we go. And now with all that done, with the dead letter office closed up, we're going to go over to Rich for the teaser for the next episode. Body snatchers, space invaders, witches, just another day in the weird war. It's what you're here for. It's what I'm here for, for sure. More weirdness. I'm one of those guys. So <laughs> will there be enough weirdness in the next issue for me? Find out next time. But until then, I'm Max. I'm Rich. We are the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast. And we promise to make war. No more. No more.